Customers are rushing to your store. Do you have a point of sale system you can trust or is it a mm, real POS? You need Shopify for retail. Shopify POS is your command center for your retail store. From accepting payments to managing inventory, Shopify has everything you need to sell in person. With Shopify, you get a powerhouse selling partner that effortlessly unites your in-person and online sales into the one source of truth. Track every sale across your business in one place and know exactly what's in stock. Connect with customers in line and online. Shopify helps you drive store traffic with plug-and-play tools built for marketing campaigns from TikTok to Instagram and beyond. Get hardware that fits your business. Take payments by smartphone, transform your tablet into a point-of-sale system, or use Shopify's POS Go mobile device for a battle-tested solution. Plus, Shopify's award-winning help is there to support your success every step of the way. Do retail right with Shopify. Sign up for a $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash theathletic, all lowercase. Go to shopify.com slash theathletic to take your retail business to the next level today. Shopify.com slash theathletic. Welcome to the latest episode of The Shamrock, presented by BetMGM, the exclusive betting partner of The Athletic. Sign up at BetMGM.com using the promo code THEATHLETICPOD. I'm Pete Sampson, joined as always by my co-host Matt Fortuna on this very wintry mix week. Uh, yet, Notre Dame, there's a lot happening for the offseason. Uh, new tight ends coach, new running backs coach. I'm trying to think of the last time we recorded an episode. Um Certainly, when Elston left, right? It could have been when Mike Elston left, um, which was a non-emergency podcast. We tried to make clear. Uh, Elston still has a job, Was- by the way. After yesterday, yeah. didn't look so good for but a while. <laughs> at Washington, defensive line coach um, Gerard Parker is the new tight ends coach, and Dela McCullough, who will feature prominently in this episode, uh, is the new running backs coach. As uh, Notre Dame is also awaiting what we think will be Al Golden as the defensive coordinator. Later in this episode, we um, were able to get Sarah Spain to come on and talk to us a little bit about really this mind-blowingly spectacular story she did on Dylan McCullough and his his own like literal origin story growing up in Youngstown, Ohio as a foster kid and how he ultimately met his biological dad later in life. If you have not read the story, you can Google Sarah Spain, Dylan McCullough, Identity. There's an E60 piece you can watch. Um, there's a story you can read. You should do both of those things. Um, but it was incredible. And yeah, I think you'll enjoy that conversation about Dylan and, and the storytelling um, later in the episode. But I guess, Matt, there's I just ran through about four or five assistant coaches that have either come or gone. John McNulty also gone uh, to Boston College, replaced 48 hours later. Uh what do you make of the the sort of continuity aspect of it? Because we were all on social media when Notre Dame's coaches were announcing, I'm coming back for hashtag Freeman era in mid-December. Um, and it felt like the band was sticking together. And now you could sort of have Tommy Reese do the Fresh Prince of Bel-Air alone in the living room, Jeff, if you wanted. I'm glad you stopped one step short of saying Sean McVay might target him as his OC, which I think could Orlovsky. No, I th- well, Orlovsky put it out there, but I mean, 
I've talked to people who know both guys, Sean McVay, and this was an exact word given to me, has a man crush on Tommy Reese. So, I mean, we'll see what happens yeah. between now and then. Kevin O'Connell, the Rams OC, who's likely took Jim Harbaugh's, what Jim Harbaugh thought was his job with the Vikings, um, has a Super Bowl to prepare for and cannot leave before then. But no, I mean, it is like, I was talking about this with someone else earlier today. Uh, much of the the momentum and excitement and, and, and frankly reasoning for promoting from within when Brian Kelly left was the continuity aspect. And look, you still have the three most important people in that building. You have the defense coordinator from last year, the offense coordinator from last year and the strength and conditioning coach. So I think the core yes. is still intact. That said, yeah, I mean, the entire offensive staff is gone. Now, two of them were asked not to return. And I don't think Notre Dame fans are going to miss either one of them all that much. Two of them got, ACC offensive coordinator jobs, which aren't jobs that exactly come around all the time. And they both got presumably big pay raises and significant um, responsibility upgrades, but it's different. It's going to be different. Um, you knew it'd be different with the new head coach. It's going to be a little bit more different than I think a lot of us had thought it would be. Um, and yet we still don't know. I mean, we think we know, but there's still no defense coordinator. Um I think that's – is that it right now? As I say that right now, I just – That is. Uh, Trad yeah, Parker that's the last position. the last piece to come. Um, so, yeah, I mean, I'll, it's interesting. I mean, I don't – I don't think it's Reese is leaving, but, like, there are going to be people at Notre Dame on pins and needles until Sean McVay hires an OC because um, that's just the nature of this business, and no one knows anything, as we saw through Jim Harbaugh leaving Michigan on signing day, only to phone his way back in. <laughs> Yeah, there's no question. I, I think that probably a lot of Notre Dame fans, what you said, unless they are a very avid listener of this podcast, all of them would be would be yeah, which should be everyone who listens, but would be surprised to know like the fact that McVeigh and Reese uh, have a professional connection. Um, you know, that's they know each other. Um, you know, and Reese is respected on that staff in Los Angeles. So that is, that's definitely something to monitor. I know Dan Orlovsky, former Shamrock guest who this, this would be maybe a reverse Shamrock bump, although his career has gone quite nicely since he appeared on the show. Um, it could still that, be a bump for Tommy Reese if it's not. A yeah. Notre Dame. <laughs> and it would definitely be a bump for Tommy Reese. But I think that there's probably some Notre Dame fans are like, wait a minute. Like this is a guy I like to complain about on Saturdays because we can't run the ball. Um, there's just, and I think that, it's a good takeaway, and I think you put this out on Twitter. Like the fact that Lance Taylor and John McNulty were promoted to Power Five offensive coordinators says a lot about what Notre Dame is running offensively. Um, Jeff Halfley is no fool at Boston College. Um, you know, he's a defensive guy, but understands what good offense looks like. Scott Satterfield at Louisville, for all his sort of self-inflicted problems with dalliances with other jobs, like knows offense. Um, so I, I think it it may surprise some fans to know like that what Notre Dame runs offensively is as well regarded in the industry as it is, but that's that should be your takeaway from McNulty and Taylor leaving. Not that coaches are wanting to leave Notre Dame, but the fact that Notre Dame has prepared them to make that kind of a jump. No question about it. I mean, it's just the nature of the beast right now. And look, I mean I don't know if people will blame early signing day. People will blame the transfer portal. People will blame the NFL season going a week longer than usual this year. End of the day, it has been a crazier coaching carousel 
at every level than it ever has before. It's taken longer than it ever has before. And it's not done yet. I mean, Notre Dame's like, because they hired their head coach earlier than most other head coaches or programs with new head coaches, um, you know, I, I assume there's some expectation that things would be settled a lot quicker, but I mean, Michigan still needs a defense coordinator. Miami still has not hired an offensive coordinator. Um, there's still a lot of comings and goings to the NFL once the Super Bowl finishes um, next week. So um, there's never a dull moment, that's for sure. Um, I'll be curious to see how this all plays out, as, as, as you've reported multiple times. Like Al Golden certainly seems like he's the target, but there could be NFL teams that are interested in him to run their defense mm-hmm. um, as he comes off a Super Bowl appearance, if not win. And, you know, he probably will have no shortage of options when he uh, when he's on the market, so to speak. Although I don't believe Michigan will be one of them. I think Notre Dame would be would not be competing with another college for him. They'd be competing with uh, another NFL team. But um, it's definitely been different. Um, one day, once the staff is fully complete, we'll get to like beat them all in a room. We've been promised as much. <laughs> it's like today USC had their like meet the new assistants press conference, yes. um, and I was following that along. And I'm like, oh yeah, that that'll be nice. Um, whenever that happens, but it's, uh, it's been different. And, you know, it was a somewhat eventful signing day without like really being an eventful signing day for Notre Dame. If that makes sense. Like there was, you had the university vice president get like destroyed by Jimbo Fisher in a press conference. You had Brian Kelly lose a recruit that he grinded on. Um, (laughs) there everywhere you look, Notre Dame had some influence on national signing day, maybe not exactly in the way they initially wanted it, but, um, if you're a Notre Dame fan, you were definitely and even, you know, Jim Harbaugh's not Notre Dame related, but that, you know, Notre Dame Michigan arrivals, like that was a big story. That was a surprising story. And yeah, I said this to our, one of our Michigan writers, Nick Baumgartner, it seemed like Michigan's handling of Jim Harbaugh in this situation was the complete opposite of Notre Dame's handling of Brian Kelly in a somewhat similar situation a couple months ago. I know they're not like exactly the same parallels, but like, Notre Dame, like, and it reminded me a lot more of 2012 with Brian Kelly, didn't it? To you, I mean, the Philadelphia that, Eagles. Is he going? Oh wait, you didn't get an offer. You now you got to come back. You didn't tell anybody. You remind me a little of that, but not to the extent of like on signing day. Yes, I'm going to interview for the Vikings, and he's yes. only going to interview if he thinks he has a job, and then he doesn't get the job, and he calls him up and like, we're so happy to have you. And it's like, I don't know, I, Nick. Bob Garner has, has said to me he's done trying to figure out like the why behind Michigan's moves um, because from the outside looking in, uh, you know, I think them and Notre Dame both are similar programs that should aim high every year and should not be held hostage by a single coach because I think you can get any coach in the country for the most part to come work there and do a good job there. Uh, but like the whole idea of, all right, thank God we kept our coach. Like what would we have done? Like we're Michigan. Like, yeah, you're Michigan. You're the winningest program of all time. You would hire someone good tomorrow. Um and Notre Dame seemed to have taken that approach this time with Brian Kelly. Now, again, I understand your parallel with the Eagles in 2013, but this wasn't Brian Kelly's first um, rodeo, so to speak, with Notre Dame, which is what I no. think ultimately uh, caused the parties to essentially go their separate ways and say thank you. Um, uh, yeah, I, li- I mean, I like the idea that Notre Dame essentially called Brian Kelly's bluff on LSU. And I think in some ways – I'll be interested to sort of see how Michigan handles Jim Harbaugh 
you know, there was, I think Nick Baumgartner reported that he had chafed a little bit at like the pay cut he took last year, which like he went two and four. I think we all, <laughs> we, we all, uh, sort of chafe at pay cuts that we have to take throughout the years. Um, but the fact that he was sort of holding that over Michigan's head, how they sort of reconcile this, is this sort of the end of it? I have a very hard time believing that it is the end of it. Um, but for now, I mean, just as a college football fan, I love the fact that Jim Harbaugh is still involved in the narrative here because you can't have all the fun happening in the SEC West. <laughs> the uh, Speaking of the SEC West, um, uh, who's the recruit? Brian Kelly's. Uh, Harold Perkins, I'm sorry. I got to have his name wrong. Uh, Brody Miller, LSU That's the reporter. guy that he got. Yeah, well, Brody Miller had a great quote from him, our LSU reporter. Uh, quote, per- Perkins, I'm being recruited by Brian Kelly. Quote, I thought he was dull and dry but he showed me different when I was up there and <laughs> he was just dull. No, it, uh, it was funny. I feel like Notre Dame recruits often had some similar quote about like, Oh, I really like this guy. Once we got in his office, I think that's um, everyone with him. Like not yeah, just recruits, like media, included, right? Yeah. You know, we both had many one-on-ones with Brian Kelly and you come away and be like, wait a minute. Like I could hang out with this guy like this. He does seem kind of normal. Like what? Why aren't, why aren't we getting this all the time um, and not just in one-on-one settings? But yeah, it's, I mean, Brian Kelly had a good class, but probably will be remembered most for the dancing uh, and second for the fact that I think three top kids from Louisiana got out on the last day. Jacoby Matthews was one of them, who ironically is a high school teammate of Amorian Walker, who stiffed Notre Dame on signing day to sign with Jim Harbaugh in Michigan and now will actually play for Jim Harbaugh at Michigan in theory. So... Wheels within wheels when it comes to uh, recruiting these days. Uh, on that note, we, we text about this a little bit, um, and you you sent me your vote, although we didn't go into uh, full breakdown, which I think we could do here. I put a poll up on Twitter yesterday, and much like a lawyer who doesn't ask a question he doesn't know the answer to, I asked this on signing day specifically because I knew what the overwhelming majority response would be, and that was um, when all is said and done, who will have the better, who will have had the better coaching career. Jimbo Fisher at Texas A&M or Brian Kelly at LSU out of 766 votes, 71.9% said Jimbo Fisher at A&M. You text me, you would say Jimbo. Why? Uh, he's got better players. That J- Jimbo's got better players is why I would I would pick Jimbo there. It, um, I mean, ultimately, it's like we've seen what Brian Kelly can do with when he has better talent than the other teams he's going against. He wins – Almost all of those games. That's the the streak against unranked teams, the streak against ACC teams of the regular season. Uh, the home winning streak was all built on the fact that Notre Dame was able to have a better roster than everybody else. Uh, well, not everybody else, but those teams. When he runs into the bus off a team with as much, if not more, talent, we've seen those results too. Uh, they're often pretty ugly. And I think he's going to run into what at least at least two with A&M and Alabama and sometimes three, sometimes four teams in the SEC that have as much, if not more talent than him. I just like, I have, but I mean, you texted back, like we all, we both could imagine Brian Kelly having a couple 11 and one seasons. I can't imagine him going 12 and 0 down there yeah. or 13 and 0. I mean, like, I think this is like, I say it because I asked this, I asked this question because I genuinely don't know. And I think it's a great discussion. I mean, um, yeah, Jimbo Fisher has better players right now. I mean, there's no question about it, but yeah, it is 
groundbreaking as this year's A&M recruiting class was. I mean, they've recruited at an extremely high level for a very long time, and they frankly haven't done a whole lot with it when you look at the end results. Now, conversely, and you know, Jimbo just got an extension before last year for what, 10 more years and 90 million, I think, or something to that extent. And when he got hired in 2018, he was presented a blank trophy that was like, fill in the date. We're going to win the national championship with you here. So that being the goal, I don't know. Uh, I would say, and I know AM fans will want to hear that in some ways, Jimbo already won the steal because the 2020 team had the highest AP final ranking they've had since World War II. Mm-hmm. For Brian Kelly to do something equivalent with LSU, he'd have to win multiple national championships, which I don't think anyone's doing that these days outside of Saban and maybe Kirby Smart. Um, so I don't know. I mean, I'm with you. I mean, Brian Kelly wins the games he's supposed to win, and you're supposed to win a lot of them down at LSU. I know they're not going to have the best roster in the SEC this year. Um, I know it'll take a couple of years to get there, but when you know every when they're having a normal offseason in a normal recruiting cycle. Um, when you stack those classes on top of one another and you, you know, protect that state as much as you can, most years, more years than not, you're going to have the best roster in that league outside of Alabama. And Brian Kelly, again, wins the games you're supposed to win. I know not everything from one school translates to the other, but I can easily see him having multiple one-loss seasons there with that one loss only coming coming to Nick Saban at Alabama. Whether that's good enough for LSU, I, I don't know. I mean, you, you said it perfectly. Like, yeah, I think he can do a better job. I think he's a better coach and less miles than Odron. Both those guys won national championships and got fired. However, like, you know, those guys also crashed and burned. I don't know if Brian Kelly's going to burn, um, at least on the field, um, the way those two did shortly after winning national championships. Like, I think he could have a long, successful tenure there that, much like the Notre Dame one, is missing just – that one not so small piece, but at the end of the day, when you look at it, you say he did a pretty good job here. Yeah. I, I mean, Notre Dame finished up at sort of as they were um, on three rankings. They were sixth, 24 7 sports. They were seventh. I mean, overall, it was basically Notre Dame's second best class of the Kelly era, if you wanted to include the, at this as a Kelly era and class. You d- didn't so. even have to grind on anyone for it. <laughs> No, I really didn't. Um, I, I, we're, we talked to a handful, or we will talk to a handful of early mid, mid-year enrollees on Friday afternoon. I may have to ask, like, did you ever, <laughs> did you ever dance with Brian Kelly or, or no? Um, we did. We God just knows, didn't want to post it. <laughs> yeah. God, God knows. We've talked about this on this podcast. The contact with Brian Kelly was hard enough to make happen on the phone, let alone in person. So... I'm guessing there wasn't a whole lot of that. But, I mean, I think Marcus Freeman comes away feeling good about where recruiting closed last year, um, where it needs to go moving forward, talking to people in that building. These staff hires have been recruiting-centric. Like, Marcus Freeman wants to lean hard into that aspect of uh, roster building um, as much as I think Notre Dame was a great player development program under Brian Kelly. It needs to be a great player development program that's developing a little bit better player um, and the onboarding part of talent, I suppose. So it'll be interesting to sort of see how that shakes out. But, um, you know, it's, is it a, it's a little bit of a younger staff, uh, but, you know, like Gila McCullough is 49. Um, you know, you'll when we get into the interview with Sarah Spain, I, I think that the way she descri- described Dylan McCullough reminded me more of like Marcus Freeman and Clark Lee guys in their mm-hmm. late thirties than guy than a guy in his late forties. So 
it'll be interesting to sort of see how this all shakes out moving forward because, I mean, Marcus Freeman is now the captain of an aircraft carrier, and it's hard to to make sharp turns and adjustments sometimes uh, when you're running the Notre Dame program at the top. Yeah, it's funny you say that. We'll listen to the interview here in a little bit, but as she described, um, as Sarah Spain described, Dylan McCullough's kind of teaching methods, I immediately pictured Marcus Freeman as far as asking players their why, getting to know more about them on a personal level and what truly triggers and motivates them. Um, I thought that was interesting. And look, the guy, um, I mean, it doesn't look like they're joining him right now, but, you know, his son Dylan the second is the safety at Indiana. His son Deshaun, I believe, just signed um, with Indiana, who is a top 75 national recruit. As a 6'5", 235-pound safety at Bloomington South, I can only imagine what it was like going up against him um, this past fall at the high school level. Uh, but he's enrolled at Indiana, and you know, I believe you know all indications right now at least say that he is staying there. But um, this is a guy who like has been around the block, like USC, winning a Super Bowl with the Chiefs, multiple stints at Indiana. The second one, I believe he had an associate head coach title and probably had a little more juice in that building than he did the first time around, but I remember talking to him at length. Ooh, this might have been seven or eight years ago now um, when Tevin Coleman was at Indiana um, for a story. Uh, and he's just, you know, really easy guy to talk to. Very easy to see why his, his uh, players loved him so much and played so hard for him. And I think, you know, I believe we both tweeted something to this effect. Like that was a name that me and you at least had discussed as a possible running back target, but it was kind of like, and they're probably not going to get him. Like he's coaching his sons. He's at home in right. Indiana. Um, and they went out and got him. I mean, I know there were some other names involved as well, but that was a really, really um, impressive hire uh, by Tommy Reese, Marcus Freeman, and the Notre Dame staff. No doubt. All right. We're going to get into the interview with Sarah Spain on her story about Dylan McCullough's background, which again, if you're listening to this and have not read or watched her story, this conversation May you may have a hard time reconciling. How, read it honestly. Re- read it before because like hit pause it and then come spoilers. back to us. Yeah. Um, yeah, it's just incredible. So we're gonna get to the interview with Sarah Spain coming up here on the Shamrock. Looking for an assist with your credit card, but can't get a hold of anyone? Luckily, with twenty four seven U.S. based live customer service from Discover, everyone has the option to talk to a real person anytime, day or night. Yep, you heard that right. You can talk to a real human and customer service at any time. Sounds like a real game changer if you ask us. Make the right call and get the service you deserve with Discover. Limitations apply. See terms at discover.com slash credit card. And now, two pigeons bemoaning the fact you can stream DirecTV satellite-free. You see this? A family watching baseball on DirecTV with no satellite dish in sight. Let's heckle them. You call that changing the channel? Choke up on the remote, buddy. I hope getting all these games on DirecTV makes up for your mother not pre-chewing your sunflower seeds. DirecTV has the most MLB games. Visit DirecTV.com. Claim based on total games offered on national and regional sports networks with choice package or higher. Availability of RSNs varies by zip code and package. High-speed internet service required. Terms and restrictions apply. Pleased to welcome in a special guest for this episode of The Shamrock, uh, Sarah Spain of ESPN, who, if you had not read this story and you're a Notre Dame fan before this week, um, I, I'm glad that mo- so many of you did this week because it was an incredible story of Notre Dame's new running backs coach, Dylan McCullough, uh, and his family journey, uh, meeting his dad, who was also his mentor. There was a great E60 documentary on it, and the story I thought was incredibly well done. So... Sarah, I get, first off, thanks for coming on and doing this. Um, yeah. The story was great. 
And I guess before getting into like how it was told, I was I was curious how you sort of uncovered it a little bit. Like what were sort of the first steps in telling what was just an absolutely incredible story? Well, I owe it to my friend Skip Trey Montana, who actually played with Dylan at Miami of Ohio. And so um, he was uh, the fullback to Dylan's running back, and they were in the room together with uh, with Sherman Smith as their coach for uh, for that one year. And so a couple years ago, when when Dylan made this incredible discovery, he just sent a text to a bunch of his teammates, um, including Skip. Uh, Y'all aren't going to believe this, right? And so as soon as Skip finds this out, um, we're sitting down to lunch. And he says, I have a story for you that you need to take straight to 30 for 30 or wherever at ESPN. And the maybe eight minute quick version of it, I was already crying at the lunch table. I'm a sap, so that doesn't say much. I cry at like Michael Jordan commercials, but um, I knew it was an incredible story. And so uh, it was really luck. And one of the best parts about telling the story was that we got in um, to, to Dylan and his family and talked to him about it. And we were able to keep it a secret until the E60 aired. And in fact, in our promotion of the E60, we didn't really say much of anything about the story uh, because we knew if we announced, we have a big story coming out about the, the Chiefs running backs coach, people would be like, wait a minute, hold on and start digging and see if they could find something. And we really wanted that big surprise at the end to be a surprise. And so, um, it was lucky that I knew Skip and incredible that the timing worked out that we could tell the story before it had really gotten out. Sarah, it sounds almost unbelievable. I mean, if you, you deliver this as an elevator <laughs> yeah. pitch, I would laugh in your face and say like, that's <laughs> not real. Um, how did you process hearing the pitch yourself and then kind of compartmentalizing everything and realizing like, wait, we need to get to work here. This is a hell of a story. Yeah. I mean, my mind was blown, but because it was my friend Skip and it was his friend, there wasn't any part of me that was like, well, that can't be real. Uh, you know, <laughs> if you heard it and you didn't have that personal connection, you'd, you'd be suspicious. And I will say that um, when I first pitched it to, I, I did go to 30 for 30, but 30 for 30 at ESPN is more what happened then. And E60 is more what's happening now. And so they passed, uh, loved it, but but said, you know, you, you should be talking to the E60 folks. So when I went in and pitched it, um, both the folks at E60 and then eventually the producer assigned to work on the story said, we're going to need a lot of evidence. Like this is um, a story that we need to do the investigating on to make sure it's all true. Do you have the paternity test results still? Do you have um, text messages and emails and all the, all the stuff? Because it is so unbelievable. It it is so wild that, um, you know, it's funny. ESPN's obviously a Disney company. If you said this is a Disney movie, you wouldn't even <laughs> run it because it'd be too, you know, too over the top. And then it ends up being real. So yeah, I mean, we we definitely had to do the digging to make sure all of it was on the up and up. Well, and I was interested in sort of how you get Dylan to open up about it. Um, I, I mean, we've all told stories where you hear about a great story, but then like the particulars involved in it don't necessarily want to open up or kind of like let you in on it. Um, I was interested in that process and how you sort of got to know Dylan and, and what your relationship was like with him. Well, I would say probably that Dylan had more trust in me than the average person because of that connection of our friend. So that helped. I think um, he trusted that we were going to tell the story the right way and trusted that I was a, a good person to tell it. Um, 
which was something I even wondered. I've never done a long form feature like this. I had done two to four minute package pieces for sports center features before I'd never written a long form feature. In fact, I originally said to the E60 folks when they said we should have a written accompaniment, I said, okay, so maybe like Mina Kimes or Wright Thompson. And they were like, <laughs> well, you're a writer, aren't you? I'm like, yeah, but I've never done this. And this is scary. And what if I screw it up? It's such a good story. Um, which I now use as a lesson to people in the industry to not have, you know, imposter syndrome and doubt yourself because uh, it ended up, I, I do say so myself, turning out really well and winning a number of awards and proved to me that I can do it if, if I put the work in and, and try. Um, I, I think Dylan, and if you ask specifically the people in his life, his wife in particular, he's a very stoic and prideful guy. And he even said when talking about a lot of the hardships that he grew up with, that there was so much bad stuff going around in Youngstown when he was growing up that he didn't want to be any more of a burden to people already dealing with, you know, really serious issues, crime and poverty. Um, you know, there were times when they didn't have any electricity. They didn't have a phone to use. There were times when they struggled to find food. And so I think he became very stoic and also very determined to get out of Youngstown and to make something of himself. So when you ask him about it now you got to work pretty hard to get past the it was fine i figured it out it, it's all good mm. right you have to talk to him for a while and know the questions to ask and that's partly why having the time to tell these stories and the resources to be able to do multiple interviews and to fly to different places and talk to his birth mom and his adopted mom and his you know his his um birth dad and his coaches and people in his life you get some of those elements that then you could take back to him and ask him for specifics and it's easier to get people to open up when you've given them something um very sort of visceral to remember and to reflect on um i still think that deland is pretty pretty closed off guy who's still working to be more vulnerable and working to not need to be the guy that just says i got this i'm gonna prove myself at every turn um but I found that everybody involved in the story was really open to talk about it because it's a good story because <laughs> everybody feels so lucky with how it turned out. And that's one of my favorite parts about it is even Sherm, it was, you know, there was that stretch of time where he was really sad that he had inadvertently without knowing it contributed to Dylan's life being a struggle. He was really sad to have not been the example that he had spent years talking to his players about being you know i think he said um to me um there is no such thing as um you know irresponsibility whatever you're irresponsible about somebody else is going to have to make up for somebody else is going to have to step in and so um even though he wasn't told about the baby um it really hurt him to learn that that he wasn't a part of it and that you know and at first didn't even was hoping that dylan would not be his son um but then once he he flipped the switch he was so all in and that's how they all feel. And I think it's a lot easier to be more open about something when there's not um, personal fault, which certainly mm -hmm. in the case of, of most of the people here, it was, it was not intentional. And when there's so much joy around this new like family that's been created. Not bad for a first swing at a long form story. You should probably quit while you're ahead. <laughs> I know. Nope. I, I think it might be done though. Cause honestly, like a lot of yeah. pressure. <laughs> That's a good batting average. I mean, I, I remember, yeah. <laughs> I think I may have even tweeted this, but like, I remember reading it and literally stopped in my tracks and said, Holy bleep. When I saw the answer to who his father <laughs> yeah. was, I mean, what, yeah. I mean, obviously, you know, all of his family was involved with this story, but um, as far as the response, anything crazy, anyone else 
anyone famous. I mean, just it was a story that I think touched so many different people, both in and outside the sports world. What was the response and reaction like to you? There was a lot, which was really cool. Um, I think for me personally, Reese Witherspoon not only tweeted about it and how great of a story it was and Sarah Spain, what great writing, but then she <laughs> went to her Instagram story and posted about it and found me to tag me to say what a great job I'd done in telling it. And in fact, her production company was one of the companies that was um, involved in the in the rights bidding for for the rights to the story that we are now working to potentially turn into a feature film and a book. Um, uh, Eric Stone Street, who's a diehard Chiefs fan, he has a, a production company or at least works with some. He was in on, on the rights bidding. Jamie Foxx allegedly told someone at CAA, uh, you know, I want in on one of the on one of the characters in the movie. Um, you know, we heard from a lot of folks. I think also it was like really moving to hear from a lot of people who came from adoptive families, um, people who read it. And in fact, at least one reached out and said it inspired them to keep looking and they had gone and found their family. Another one, unfortunately, had had done the same and uh, their birth parent had no interest in, in meeting with them or, or getting to know them. So the story is not always going to be positive. And that's what's so great about this one is that everyone was so receptive to creating this new molded uh, blended family. Um, but yeah, we got we got so much incredible feedback. And I love to now as people discover it in waves later when it re-airs or when the story pops back up um, and, and the new people get a chance to hear the story. Um, but yeah, one of the funny ones was one of those, you know, just like viral uh, social media accounts, like crazy facts. And it came, <laughs> popped up once and it was just a, a photo from the written story. And then it said, you know, crazy fact. Uh, Chiefs coach Dylan McCullough and I sent it to Dylan and I was like, "Yo, this is crazy!" Like, you know, and it was just funny how it had started becoming like an internet meme of like wild but true. Um, so it's funny. What as you sort of spent some time around Dylan, you know, with I, I think when the story was coming out, it was USC and Kansas City a little bit. Um, you know, was some Indiana before that. Did you get a measure talking to people that know him or maybe his players at all? If you did, just like why he's a good coach, because um, he's is extremely well regarded. I think within mm. the industry, I think a couple things. Um, one, he is a very kind person who respects the players a lot. Um, there's a bit that we've been talking about in, in in the creation of this movie that he felt like a lot of coaches, especially early on when he got like when he got to USC and he was maybe viewed as someone who wasn't quite ready for the big time because he was coming from Miami of Ohio and Indiana that the coaches, some of the coaches there seemed to believe in the principle. If they don't fear me, they won't hear me. And he did not align with that. His approach was not about intimidation and fear. It was about respect and um, getting the most out of people. He, um, Gosh, I'm going to make sure I get the name right. It's Ronald Jones, right? Is who I'm thinking of. Yeah, um, USC running back. Yeah, yeah, Ronald Jones. Yeah. Um, he 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 had to take extra work with Ronald Jones to get to the root of his why, and that's really important to Dylan. And he told him, you know, I'm, I'm having trouble getting through to you. I want to find a way to motivate you. I think that you can be the best, but you got to be vulnerable with me and let me in and and, and work with me. And what he found with with Ronald Jones is he needed to get to his why and what his personal relationships were with family members and parents and those around him and how he was informed and influenced by those relationships to work harder or to try to make it or succeed. 
and he had to let down his own walls about um, when he was growing up and playing football, what mattered most to him was to get out of Youngstown and to support his, his mom and his family because it was such a struggle to be able to prove to everyone that he was better than, than their expectations. And that happened over the course of his life multiple times, including, you know, feeling rejected by his adopted father because he's now in theory by choice or not been doubly rejected by the men in his life. He never knew his birth father. And then his adoptive father leaves when he's so young Mm -hmm. that he is dealing with this constant. Am I not enough? Is it have to do with me? And then, you know, in, in high school, again, you know, he has to prove himself at the position that he wants to play. He finally gets that opportunity. And all of a sudden the recruiting offers come in, he gets to college and they want to move him to a different position. He says, no, I'd rather continue where I believe I belong and make, make my stand there. And, ends up in the NFL, doesn't get drafted, but gets signed by the Bengals and is able to play. Uh, he was you know, the best in the NFL in the preseason. I know preseason numbers don't always mm-hmm. bear out because so many of the superstars are, are sitting, but he had a sure spot and then he blows out his knee. And, and so at every turn, he felt like he had to prove something and he wanted to prove um, that he could come back and, and take care of his family. And so in talking to Ronald Jones and digging deeply into finding out what motivated him, he was able to unlock potential that had not yet been realized and turn him into a better player. So I think he's willing to put in the work to get to know players off the field and to, um, to uplift them and empower them to be their best versus that old school mindset of I'm the boss, listen to me, fear me kind of thing. You mentioned potential film rights or potential book rights. What can you share about where the story may go from here, whether it's the big screen or um, to Barnes and Noble or Amazon? Yeah. Um, take take <laughs> yeah. that however you want. Are there still are there still Barnes and Noble? <laughs> I hope so. I used to. I, I think there's still a couple. Um, well, one of the cool things was that uh, Russell Wilson and Sierra's company um, was interested in in the rights to the film as well. And when we finally got down to it, um, Macro, which is a really great uh, production company that's done uh, fences and sorry to bother you and all these great um, a, a lot of really um, African-American driven award-winning films ended up being the one we went with but Russ and Sierra wanted so badly to be involved that they came on as producers so they're in uh, uh, one of the heads from that company is in the pitch meetings with us as we're pitching to studios um, and uh, and they're really motivated by being a part of telling the story too so that's been really cool is um, having that sort of um, interest from someone in the game who, who, who knows what a great story it is. Um, so far we're just in the pitch phase. So we've, uh, macro has found, and it took a couple swings at finding the right screenwriter and in, in having to tell the story. And that was something when I was writing it, it's basically a mystery. I felt like I was writing a CSI episode. It was like, okay, so people need to know how important this Sherman guy is, but I can't like make him too important. Cause then they'll be like, wait a minute, that's him. That's the dad. You got to like introduce enough people and, and keep the question throughout, but without giving it away. And so the same goes for a movie version, right? Is how do you tell the story? Is it flashbacks? Is it, is it chronolo- chronological? How do you tell the story for the, for the big payoff? Um, and, and what parts of it do you tell? Cause at this point it was already a great story. But then the Chiefs won the Super Bowl with Carol Briggs, his mom, in the audience. Shout out to Gatorade because I asked him for tickets last minute so I could take her because she wasn't going to get to the game. Um, you know, we win an Emmy and and Carol comes on stage with me and wants to go out partying afterwards to celebrate this big win. And and then, you know, they win the Super Bowl and and now he, you know, goes to at, at first, you know, 
the, the Miami of Ohio of his son committing to there. So now there's this through line of, of the family. There's so many good elements to it that to try to whittle down. But um, so, yeah, we're in the pitch phase. And and so far, the, the belief is that a book is better off with the um, tie to a movie um, that the advances and the interest and the investment is better once we've got more of the movie stuff kind of figured out. So that's kind of on hold until then, which is fine with me because I have no idea when I would be writing a, move, a, a book right now. Like, I don't, I don't know how people write books while having other jobs. Um, but, uh, but yeah, so that's where we're at right now is pitching to studios. It's going to be incredible when this movie ends with Notre Dame winning a national championship. <laughs> I know, right? Uh, I mean, he's just going like, to keep moving around and winning like, in different places. A Notre Dame like Hollywood refresh happening here. Like, I, yeah. Rudy's going to Sherman's going to, you know, Sherman's going to come out of retirement and join the staff. <laughs> they're going to be working side by side. You know, one of his. We'll wait until one of his sons becomes, you know, the NFL MVP, and they're yeah. getting there. <laughs> There's all sorts of good material here. Well, I, I mean, before we let you go, was I don't know. Was there anything else about this story or like it's it's sort of afterlife or afterglow? Maybe even just in the last couple of weeks as, as Dylan has, you know, moved to Notre Dame that has sort of like, do you sort of still get juice when it springs back up? Because um, it's really an incredible story that I mean, I, I think about it in my writing regularly um, that mm. still just sort of sticks with you or you still get kind of. Um, you know, the, the, just the unique energy from it. For sure. Um, so incredibly rewarding for me personally, um, in part because of what I said before, it was an opportunity to stretch myself and then prove that I could do something. And over the course of a, a number of different times in my career, I've had to sort of stop myself from being, from limiting myself or worrying about whether I can do something. And especially I think as a woman in the sports industry, there's an extra amount of built-in imposter syndrome and there's an extra amount of doubt that comes with the just general business. And so um, to have the opportunity to put something out like this and to be a part of something so great was really rewarding for me. And then again, you know, when, when Dylan went to Indiana, the story comes back up and everyone wants to talk about it. now that he's at Notre Dame the story comes back up and everyone wants to talk about it. So um, it is very cool to have new people discover it and read it and be like, what? That's insane. <laughs> this has to be a movie. I'm like, I know we're working on it. Um, but also I think, I've been thinking a lot about dealing in the last couple of days with the Brian Flores thing. Mm. I, I mean, I was shocked when he left the chiefs for Indiana and it wasn't for a head coaching game. I, I said, isn't that going backwards, right? You're, you're in the NFL, you're working your way up, but it's not lost on me that he was in the NFL alongside a guy in Eric B that people have been saying for years should have and not ha and has not gotten an opportunity as a head coach. And that the idea of needing to go to college where you might actually have a chance at being a head coach because of how flawed the NFL is and how bad, I mean, they're going backwards when you look at now there being just one black head coach in the NFL. Yeah, there's only 32. So that's certainly part of it. But, but I also think um, it's possible that Dylan saw the writing on the wall and was like, if I want to be a head coach, it's probably not going to happen here. So let me get back into the college ranks and, and try to find my spot. So I've been thinking about him a lot and, and, and that kind of situation for black head coaches or guys who want to be head coaches. Um, so yeah, it comes up a lot. And then, you know, just a couple of days ago, I got my Facebook memory of, of Carol and I at the Super Bowl and the video of her crying as, as the, you know, the final clock ticked down and sent it to both of them. Happy anniversary. You know, and then today was all the, uh, yeah, pit bull videos from the chiefs after party that I had taken because Pitbull performed 
and there's a weird Tony Robbins narrated introduction to Mr. Worldwide that felt like I was getting ready to be bought into a pyramid scheme. It was a little weird, but anyway, I'll, yeah, lots of, lots of good memories. And it does come back a lot, especially in talking to people. Uh, you know, I just was at dinner a couple nights ago with Wright Thompson and I, and we were talking about how I used to read his stuff and be like, how in the world does he get all this? And like, where does he get all this detail from? And then you, you do one of these stories and you realize the amount of work that goes in the number of interviews and the time and you start to realize how you can pull all these pieces and weave them throughout to add that that detail, to add that that insight and that color. And um, it's not as daunting when you actually, well, it's daunting in terms of time. I mean, sitting in a chair for hours and hours and hours and hours <laughs> trying to make it happen. But it, but but you figure out how how to get it done, and and then the mystery behind what's so scary about pieces like that kind of goes away. As much as I'd love to end this interview with uh, Pitbull and Tony Robbins mention, I do have one more question. Um, in the both the E60 piece and in the E60 piece, you show video of the family reunion and you write about it in the written piece. I'm curious, were you there? Were you there with like the camera crew? What was it like to um, kind of be on site for that, you know, incredibly emotional, I'm sure, and a happy moment? Yeah, I was not there for that, unfortunately. Um, they sent the main producer and a photographer to get the photos for the for the piece and the kind of drone shot and video shot that that ends it um so i wasn't there for that um but uh there have been a, a number of other you know uh the chiefs came to play uh the bears and so a couple family members of Dylan's came in town um and so we got together and a little tailgating and and, and saw carol and stuff before that game and again the super bowl so there's been a couple opportunities um, to spend time with them, but uh, uh, but yeah, I mean, I think one of the coolest things for me is because they discovered each other just a few months before I was told and started following them all on social is how they've started um, finding ways to spend time with each other. Uh, the Christmas cards that we send each other, and then you see that they've got all the different all the different members of the family kind of blended together with the updates and. And, you know, what was most touching for me in part was that, um, you know, Sherm had a, had a life and a wife and kids and all this other stuff. And Dylan had his family and he grew up with a mom, but Carol never got married or had other kids. And so to be in your early 60s and all of a sudden you have a son and a daughter-in-law and four grandkids and, uh, you know, all this family uh, was a really magical thing for her and her life. And, and she's just an awesome, awesome, really funny lady. Uh, and so that was really cool is just to kind of watch them from afar as they're all becoming a part of each other's lives more and more. Sarah, thank you so much for making some time to chat with us about it. And like, seriously, if you are a Notre Dame fan and have not read this story, you need, <laughs> you need to stop listening to this podcast Go do it. Then yes. you can come back and listen to the rest of the podcast later, or you can watch yeah. the E60 special. Yeah, I know that there's someone on YouTube posted the whole E60, like, because it's hard to find sometimes online. But if you search for like E60 identity on YouTube, it's a it's crudely made. It is a video of someone. <laughs> I may or may not have watched that version of it again yeah. before this interview. You, listen, you do you do get the the vibe of it. Um, and uh, I'm not a Notre Dame fan, but one of my very good friends uh, played at Notre Dame. And we often get back for tailgates to go to go with them and, and take it all in. So I'm sure I will be there to, to see Dylan and Chiramon at some point this upcoming season. Fantastic. Thanks so much, Sarah. Really appreciate you. Yeah, thanks for having me. 
As you've probably heard by now, we've teamed up with BetMGM this season. We'll be using BetMGM lines to make all of our picks, and we'll have special offers for our listeners each week. If you haven't signed up for BetMGM yet, use bonus code THEATHLETIC, and you'll get a one-year subscription to The Athletic, plus up to a $1,500 first bet offer on your first wager with BetMGM. Here's how it works. Download the BetMGM app and sign up using bonus code THEATHLETIC. Make your first deposit of at least $10, place your first bet on any game, and claim your voucher for a one-year subscription to The Athletic. See BetMGM.com for terms. U.S. promotional offers not available in D.C., Mississippi, New York, Nevada, Ontario, or Puerto Rico. Gambling problem? Call 1-800-GAMBLER. Available in the U.S. Call 877-8-HOPE-NY or text HOPE-NY 467-369 in New York. Call 1-800-NEXT-STEP in Arizona. 1-800-327-5050 in Massachusetts. 1-800-BETS-OFF in Iowa. 1-800-270-7117 for confidential help in Michigan. 1-800-981-0023 in Puerto Rico. First bet offer for new customers only in partnership with Kansas Crossing Casino and Hotel. Don't forget, if you haven't signed up for BetMGM yet, use bonus code THEATHLETIC and you'll get a one-year subscription to The Athletic, plus up to a $1,500 first bet offer on your first wager. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth Shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make Shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Matt, that was a fun sort of uh, exercise as a journalist, but also a college football fan to sort of unpack that story because it's, uh, I mean, it's incredible how it comes together. Um, Sarah did an incredible job telling it. And then just like the story itself was gold from the very beginning and like it really shined through in the way that uh, I think ESPN presented it. It was incredible. I mean, I, you know, it's, uh, I'm not exactly, I remember like literally and I don't, I don't know. Maybe I'm jaded. I just don't get like surprised or stopped in my tracks a whole lot when I'm reading something or, or when it involves yeah. college football or, or NFL. And I remember like reading it and stopping, literally reading it saying, Holy like crap. Um, except I didn't say crap. Like it was like, Whoa, like how, like, how is that even possible? Like, this is incredible. And then you watch the 60 piece. Um, it's great. I mean, there's just so many layers of, um, emotions and human interest and, you know, just so many different characters within that story. That's just crazy. And even if you watch E60 piece, I was struck by how kind of calm and together d was just essentially reciting that story because it was still pretty fresh at the time. And it's still something that's just absolutely bonkers when you really think about it. Yeah, it would be interesting to sort of see how that personality fits into the offensive room a little bit up here because you know I think Harry Heastan we know his personality um Chancey Stuckey I think we sort of assume he's going to be kind of watch and learn um such a not necessarily a young coach but an inexperienced coach uh and then you know Gerard Parker I think is a little bit more of a wild card because he does not have a whole lot of um no, any experience working with Tommy Reese, he has experience with Marcus Freeman. But um, I would think that coming to Notre Dame, even though even if the title is not what it was at Indiana, you sort of see what Dylan McCullough's personality was like, how he can command a room, how he sort of relates to players. It may be an opportunity for him to have a lot more responsibility at Notre Dame um, and sort of let 
a little bit more of that personality come out, um, even if he's not a coordinator. Yeah, it was interesting to hear Sarah talk about his path, right? Leaving the Super Bowl winning Chiefs to go back to Indiana, a place you had already been. What are you doing this for? Well, maybe I want to be a head coach one day, and this is a quicker path or, or more uh, productive path to get there. We've seen some not great coaches have Notre Dame on the resume become head coaches because of that ND stamp yeah. of approval. And I don't want to like oversimplify it, but whether it's administrators, whatever, like everyone wants to hire Notre Dame guys, um, good and bad. Um, Brian Kelly's last three defense coordinators, all of whom are really good, are all now power five head coaches. And they all got there pretty darn quickly after Notre Dame, two of them directly from Notre Dame. So um, if you want to be a head coach, that is a great place to go uh, because you're going to interact with people um, off the field that you probably would not have access to at any other school in the country. You're going to travel throughout the country in a way that, especially as a running backs coach, you probably wouldn't um, as a recruiter um, when you're looking at just one position or being a regional recruiter at, at another school. So um, I think, you know, I think his USD experience will help with that as well. Um, yes. Yeah. I, I can't imagine, you know, between working in the state of Indiana, working for Notre Dame's biggest rival and working for an NFL organization that won a Super Bowl with him there. Uh, I think that really does check all the boxes. I mean, if, if I don't mean this to mission, but like on paper, he is vastly overqualified for this job. And that's obviously a good thing if you're Notre Dame. I mean, he was he was a name that came up at least when they were hiring Lance Taylor, and certainly when they're I believe even when they hired Autry Denson, as he was much less experienced at that time. I think it was in the early stage of Indiana Part One. But um, this is a name like when I talk to people who are when I talk to a prominent running backs coach uh, and ask him, like, who do you like? You know, you've been a running backs coach for a very long time. Dylan McCullough is the first guy that gets mentioned all the time. So he's very well regarded in the industry. And look, look, not everyone is. I don't I don't want to make this sound like, well, there's a confirmation bias or a proximity bias to Dylan McCullough for some other coaches because they know him, so they have to like him. Um there have been plenty of coaches that come through that you it, you struggle to find people to compliment, um, and it they're sort of like offhanded or backhanded compliments. With Dylan McCullough, people are all in on the guy, um, and he was very well regarded for. I mean, I, I talked to Bruce Feldman about this. Our colleague at the Athletic, he had done some stuff around USC when Dylan McCullough was there, uh, and said he was the most impressive coach on that staff uh, in terms of how how detailed he was, how demanding he was, how much he got out of his position group. Um, you, know, you heard Ronald Jones referenced in that interview uh, with Sarah Spain. Marquis Stepp was a, a one-time Notre Dame player who went to USC. I mean, was not an all-world talent, a one-time Notre Dame commitment who flipped to USC. Not an all-world talent, but in a game against Notre Dame, he was lights out. So it... Um, I think Dylan McCullough is going to be incredibly welcomed by Notre Dame's running backs and sort of like easy to connect with that group. Um, I think he's going to do a, really a bang up job. Yeah. And if you remember that Super Bowl that the Chiefs won, I mean, Damian Williams had every right to win that MVP as much as, as Patrick Mahomes did. I mean, I believe he had two fourth quarter touchdown runs um, that helped Kansas City come back and ultimately capture the trophy. But the part two that I think gets overlooked with Dylan. And I think with a lot of this staff is um, the credibility that comes with their playing careers. I mean, this is 
yeah. You know, I'm not a Miami of Ohio historian the way our friend Chuck Martin is, but I think he's the best running back in school history, at least based on everything I've read and all the stats he put up. And even when I wrote that story on Tevin Coleman um, a couple of years ago, um, they both talked about basically like anytime Tevin was getting ahead of himself, um, Dylan would be like, yeah, but you don't have my numbers yet. Yeah, but you didn't do this like me. Yeah, but like, here's my film. Let's see how it's really done. Like, that matters. Marcus Freeman yep. being a starting linebacker on a national finals at Ohio State matters. Tommy Reese being a multi-year starting quarterback at Notre, at the school he's coaching at right now matters. Um, Chancey yep, Stuckey. With all these, Chancey Stuckey playing in the NFL. And, and, Harry Easton coaching in the NFL. Harry Easton coaching NFL and at Notre Dame. Like, there's, I think there's a lot of credibility um, – that, that comes with this staff. Now it's a matter of seeing how it all blends together because it clearly has not taken the the shape or form that I think we envisioned it maybe six weeks ago. I wonder if uh, whenever we get a chance to talk to Dylan McCullough, if he sees any parallels to his NFL career to Marcus Freeman. Uh, Marcus Freeman's ended mm-hmm. with an enlarged heart, uh, was sort of deemed unable to play. Um, Dylan McCullough's ended with a blown out knee and wasn't able, wasn't able to come back from that. Um, if there's a perspective that they share maybe without even knowing it. Um, because, you know, to be upfront, like talking to people in the building, like this was Reese's hire. Um, the Marcus Freeman's approach to hiring a running backs coach was like, Tommy, you, I don't have a dog in this fight. You tell me who would be good, who you want. Um, and Reese's perspective is like, we're going to go get a front, a top high end guy, um, which is exactly what they did with this. But, I think I could see McCullough and Freeman having a kinship without even knowing it. Um, I'm not sure if their paths would have crossed Indiana and Cincinnati played the last couple year. years, but that yeah. doesn't really apply to, to Freeman. Um, that maybe there's something there. I, I'm not really sure, but um, uh, Indiana, I, I would think that they would get along. Yeah. Indiana, Purdue, good call. Um, I He would definitely know what kind of backs Dylan McCullough would put out, um, even if it was just a, a brief overlap. You know, it's funny you mentioned that. I, I thought the same thing watching that video, the E60 piece again, before we interviewed Sarah uh, on today's show, uh, watching the video of him going down in the preseason game with the Bengals and essentially seeing what looked like a really promising career ending before it started. My first thought was, oh, yeah, like his boss went through something similar. Now, Marcus Freeman on this very show and in other interviews has essentially said, uh-uh like that that's a good story for you guys to tell but i was never good enough and like that narrative just kind of yeah took out of life of it is different we'll never know if Dylan mccullough wasn't good enough because again preseason's preseason but you know to be a, a rookie leading the league he would have made the team like he would have made the team exactly and once you're in the building who knows where you could take yourself so i'm sure there's a lot of hard hard learned lessons that he took from that experience that he still takes from that experience that he'll be able to share um, with his players right now. But that's a good point. And yeah, I mean, I didn't even think about it until we were just saying it. I mean, yeah, they were at Indiana and Purdue at the exact same time. So I'm sure they crossed paths uh, at some point. All right. Well, I think from Notre Dame's point of view, we're still waiting on a DC, that hiring story, although we, again, expect it to be Al Golden, uh, waiting on the announcement of Parker and McCullough. Uh, and then at some point, Notre Dame will have all of the assistants available um, as sort of a meet and greet for – hopefully that will be all the changes that are necessary since we've referenced Tommy Reese as well. Uh, and then 
just tomorrow, all the mid-year enrollees will be available as well. So there will be plenty. Notre Dame is sort of keeping keeping the content uh, mill running here, which we appreciate because it gives us more to talk about and write about and podcast about. But um, it, uh, it, it's probably been a, a more active January than even Marcus Freeman would have imagined. And he imagined it to be quite active and quite busy. Um, but it's February, Pete, which I think speaks to your point. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> He's getting getting into another month, which does not things don't seem to be slowing down really at all. But uh, and the Shamrock will be back to cover it all. So, I, Matt, unless you have any uh, final thoughts, I don't know if we'll be back before the Super Bowl. You're going to give me a pick for uh, Bengals Rams. Now, I might be out there. Actually, I'm going out west next week. I'll be off. But um, the. Well, if Al Golden's listening to this podcast, I got to go with the Bengals, right? Um, <laughs> I'll, I'll say Rams. They're the better team, but like that's been the case in every game the Bengals have played so far, and they keep proving people wrong. So I just hope it's a good game. Yeah, I'm with you on that one. It's, uh, it was a pretty awesome NFL weekend. It, it reminded me, I was like, oh, yeah, the football playoffs can actually be good and entertaining games. Uh, the last six games in the NFL have all been just incredible. Decided in overtime around a field goal. Yeah, I, t- I, I totally get uh, the it, the fact that it is the highest level of football because that football was incredible to watch. So it was a, yeah, it we got one more game before the real, real off season, um, but still plenty to do with Notre Dame here as a new coaching staff, new roster spring practices isn't that far away. The spring game was recently announced. I believe that's April 23rd. I don't quite have it committed to memory, but um, plenty of spring stuff happening around Notre Dame too. You had a good Brandon Joseph story on the site. Uh, if you haven't read that yet. Um, so the, I guess college football is it's turned into a year. Round. It always has been. And now we've just sort of come to terms with it. No, especially April 23rd is correct, by the way, for the blue gold game. Um, yeah, I mean, it's, I, I love, you get to ask this question a lot, I'm sure. What do you do in the offseason? I, I know season? I do. <laughs> yeah. It's like, this is like the season, and, and I don't, this is not a complaint, so don't take it the wrong way. But the season is a literal vacation. Like, oh, I'm going to a game, and all I have to do is write about this game. This is fun. This is easy. <laughs> you know, like, and then I get to talk about it with you after. Like, the other nine months of the year, it's on the phone and refreshing the transfer portal. Like, and figuring out conference realignment and all that other fun stuff. Like it's, um, yeah, there's, I mean, more than ever, especially with the portal um, and bro Bible, there's, there's no off season. <laughs> no doubt about it. Uh, well, we'll wrap up there. The Shamrock will be here to cover all the ridiculousness of the college football off season. Um, Cause really it's just it's the ridiculousness of college football. It's never ending. Uh, but that's part of the reason we love the sport. So Thanks again to Sarah Spain for hopping on the show with us today. Um, He's Matt. I'm Pete. Appreciate you being with us on this latest episode of The Shamrock. Shamrock.